Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to the University of Houston's Hydrogen Program Officer, Paul Doucette, about a consortium that's been put together to create a hydrogen hub and apply for funding under a federal U.S. program. And this will be of interest not only to our American listeners, but also to Canadian ones, because Edmondson uh, in Alberta is already undertaking a similar kind of process. And so we'll be, we'll be interested to hear what Paul has to say about where uh, Texas is at in this development, in hydrogen hub development, and how they see it developing over time. So welcome to the interview, Paul. Thank you, Mark. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, I'm delighted to have you here. Uh, a big fan of of Texas. Um, uh, as regular listeners will know, I spent five years uh, in the oil and gas industry uh, earlier on in my career. And uh, some of those years were in Texas, uh, mostly in the uh, West Texas, in the Midland Odessa area, but got over to Houston and uh, points south uh, down into the uh, Eagleford as, uh, basin as well. And up into up into um, New Mexico, into the Hobbs area, of course, in the in the western side of the the Permian Basin. So, but I understand your background is is mostly oil and gas. It is. Um, I joined Texaco in 1970, and essentially been in the oil and gas industry ever since. I started in South Louisiana, and then over time ended up in uh, in Houston. And went through a career with Texaco, a little bit of time with GE, um, GE Oil and Gas, ultimately Baker Hughes. I tell people, Mark, I've tried to retire four times, and my wife and my mortgage company think it's a bad idea. So here I am at the <laughs> University of Houston. I, I I feel your pain, Paul. I feel your pain. <laughs> well, look, um, that this is actually good background be, because the um, in the short term, and and perhaps for the long term, for all we know. But the idea, I think, is that uh, blue hydrogen, which is made using the steam methane reforming process and natural gas combined with uh, carbon capture utilization and storage, is going to be the model for hydrogen development uh, until such time as electrolyzers and green hydrogen become economic. Um, so we'll we'll see how that goes. And the, your application or your proposal, the, this consortium is is designed around uh, blue hydrogen. Can you give us a little background about the the program uh, that you know? Why did the consortium come together, and why did it you know submit uh, an application to this particular program? Well, the participants in the in the consortium recognize that hydrogen is one of the key components of the energy transition. Right, natural gas, oil are going to be around for for many years, perhaps decades to come. But we're going to have to find ways to to uh, decarbonize 
those fuel sources. And one way to decarbonize natural gas is to use it uh, to make hydrogen and, and ultimately perhaps for, for export purposes, ammonia. When, when we at the university think of hydrogen, we think of both blue and green. Blue is perhaps a little closer to um, economic viability today than green is. Uh, but here in Texas, you know, we have a nuclear power plant. We have an awful lot of wind and solar resources. And of course, we have natural gas and lots of poor space for CCUS. So for us, it's blue to start. And then it's other things to move forward as, you know, to, to use as we move forward. Um, when the when the government provided a, a an opportunity to, to compete for a hub, the industrial base along the Texas Gulf Coast seemed to have everything, right? We have industry, we have hard to abate industries that need to eliminate carbon dioxide emissions. Um, we have an enormous pipeline network. We have natural gas in abundance. We have pore space where we can sequester the carbon dioxide that does come off the process. And we have outlets to the export markets where we can move hydrogen or ammonia to Europe or to Asia Pacific who are increasingly looking for alternatives to Russian gas and low carbon sources of energy for the future. That's very interesting. And it does sound a lot like the advantages that um, um... That Edmonton has without the without the port, of course, uh, Edmonton being landlocked without a coast, which is a continual uh, political issue in Alberta. But we won't get into that. Grist for another conversation. What I want to do is, is set the the context for this conversation, Paul. In that, uh, regular listeners will will probably have heard me interview uh, people like um, uh, Doctor uh, Bentley Allen about modern industrial policy. And the U.S. has embraced modern industrial policy uh, with uh, with gusto. So old style industrial policy, the pre, sort of pre nineteen eighty, uh, was pick a national champion and build one out. So like uh, you know, in in South Korea, for example, um, the Korean government chose Hyundai, and here we are you know, 40 years later, 50 years later, and they're making, you know, one of the world's largest car manufacturers, and they're in a big industrial group and so on. And they were protected with with tariffs and, and other kinds of policies, and they were subsidized by, by the government. Well, that's the old style. The new style is to basically build industrial clusters and their supply chains, and you bring together uh, <clears throat> consortiums. Uh, collaboration is a big, big part of, of this industrial strategy. And we'll, we'll get into that in a moment, how it works, because you've been part of that process. Um, but I, but at the national level, I've had the chance to read a couple of speeches, one by Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, and the other one by the National Economic Council Director, Brian Deese. And I don't think Canadians understand the extent to which the Americans uh, have embraced this. Like this is the, it's very clear to me that the U.S. government understands now that it is vulnerable, uh, its energy security in the future is vulnerable to disruption or the weaponization of clean energy by China. That's front and center in, in all of, you know, this is, we have to have, we have to have control over clean energy technology and its, and its uh, industry. 
And we're going to build that. We're going to build the industry. We're going to build the supply chains. We're going to do it with our partners like Canada and Mexico and, and other countries. And, and, and those two speeches, if anybody wants to Google them, are very, very clear. The, we're not, we're not being, we're not uh, uh, playing footsie with this one. It, it, so is that the kind of conversations, Paul, that are taking place, you know, with your, the consortium partners that you're involved in? Everybody under, kind of understands that's what's going on? I think that they do, uh, Mark. I, you know, at the end of the day, I, I feel like that up until relatively recently, we've tended to think in terms of companies. You know, uh, a, a company A would become an expert in this, that, or the other thing. Um, they would develop a technology. They would scale up. And then they, after they did that and they had a market share, they would seek to offshore maybe jobs, maybe the supply chain. And, and, but it was a kind of a one-off, right? You'd have a, a company or a relatively small number of companies that sort of dominated the space. This, this hub or this consortium con concept seems to be the evolution of that, right? And, and I think what the, the speeches you mentioned and the policy that you reference are, are an accurate description of where we're headed. And that is to, to eliminate the vulnerability by onshoring some of what we let go, but capitalizing on national or, or, or regional, I'll say, to include Mexico, Canada, and you know, perhaps some of Europe, um, collaborations so, so that we, we both don't spread that vulnerability any further, but, but don't get locked into a, a single source problem even here at home. So that's a complicated, lengthy answer, but that's kind of the way I think about it. Well, the program that you applied to, your consortium applied to, is the funding opportunity, uh, sorry, it's under the uh, Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Now, in Canada, we spend a lot of time talking about the $369 billion uh, U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, but the, uh, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act is also has, uh, I think it's well over $300 billion. And then combined with the Chips and Science Act, all three of those, bring they bring well over $1 trillion of, ca of public capital to the table uh, by 2030. So, and, and of course, many of the programs are designed to crowd in private capital. So this isn't just the government, it's, it's meant to bring in uh, private capital as well. And what's your take on, you know, somebody who spent time in the energy industry, what's your take on that approach? So, you know, it just multiplies your opportunity, right? If, if the government's going to spend a trillion dollars in this particular, these three spaces that we've talked about, infrastructure chips and, and inflation reduction, and, and that's to be matched with cost share from industry, from the private sector, to the tune of another trillion dollars, perhaps a trillion and a half dollars, that just expedites the speed. Um, it insulates you against the inevitable um, failures or shortcomings of certain research projects. I mean, you're not going to be, when you're out at the cutting edge of technology, you're not going to be successful with everything. And so it, uh, and, and I, maybe the other thing I would say here is that it brings a diversity of thought, of input to, to the kinds of projects that we're going to work on. So we get a much better, um, spread, if you will, of, uh, 
uh, projects and and opportunities. Yeah, the the uh, the Americans are very very good at research and development. Then taking that new technology uh, out of the lab, off the bench, getting it into the process with pilot projects, demonstration projects, and then eventually commercializing and scaling it up. This, that's something that Canadians, uh, frankly, have not been very good at over the years, and we're 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 catching on. We're a little slow, but we're we're getting there. We we're understanding it, but we need to do it more. And the thing about that you mentioned, and this is what caught my attention, you mentioned not every project is going to succeed, and the Americans more than any other embrace failure. You know, yeah. it's look, you're just, you know, if you're going to, if we're going to be innovative, if we're going to innovate, if we're going to bring new stuff to the table, a certain percentage of that is just not going to fly it, you know, and we'll learn from it and move on. And and hopefully the next iteration the, will, will be successful. The key to that Markham is, is to build in off ramps, right. To build in a stage, kind of a stage gate process where you start out with a technology roadmap so that everybody's on the same page as to what you're trying to get to. And, and then because you have this diverse consortia, you have a variety of different ideas to get you there, some of which proceed and some of which are not going to succeed. And so there's an off-ramp to take to get rid of those. Here, here in the U.S., at least, and I think in the engineering community, you'll hear a lot of people talk about the valleys of death. <laughs> right? yes. and, and there are, as you start from technology readiness level zero, you know, some wild idea, and, and you move up to commercialization, there are a couple of three places where technology development gets stuck. And and the, the government intervention, the government funding, collaborative approaches, consortium development can help you to bridge those gaps. Yes, that, that's exactly right. In fact, on on this podcast, we we talk about the Valley of Death on a regular basis, and and the uh, and the need for public capital to step in and de-risk those new technologies uh, along the way uh, to get so they they bridge that valley that Valley of Death because otherwise, you know, essentially, you know, government funds a lot of the research and development, a lot of the science behind this and and if you fund that part of it and then the technology that comes out of your R&D dies in the valley of death because it can't attract capital then you've just basically wasted all the money that you spent on on the science so exactly makes- and and one more thought in that regard and that is that that one of the things that this government public private partnership brings to the beginning of that state of that whole process is to ensure that these ideas have at least a vision for commercialization that they're not a science project that that just kind of you do for the sake of doing sure and and how we're going to tie this into your into the story about your consortium is that you know uh, the university of houston is the lead academic partner there's the um, Southern States Energy Board. There's the National Energy Technology Laboratory. I mean, you very deliberately built academia and researchers into your consortium. Yes, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, a hub's got to have a commercial orientation, right? We've got to be able to generate hydrogen, transport hydrogen, and sell it. And so that's the commercial piece. Um, the National Energy Technology Lab has... Uh, uh, up in Golden, Colorado, has a has a really good hydrogen program. So they were a natural partner. 
The um, Southern States Energy Board is a not-for-profit, uh, congressionally chartered organization of the 16 Southern States. They're going to lead the project in terms of administering the funding. But but that account, that whole process that I just described, accounts for just 60% of the scoring of a hydrogen hub proposal. The other 40% come from things like business models and research and innovation ideas or, or intellectual processes, uh, community benefits, stakeholder engagement. And that's the side of the equation, the so-called soft side that the University of Houston is going to lead. We've put together a consortium of seven other Texas-based universities and five or six community colleges in the Houston area who will help us with workforce development and skill reskilling of, of energy employees and, and these, again, these so-called soft skills that are required as a part of the con consortium effort. Now, this is fascinating. Uh, and I, I want to say, and I have to say kudos to your consortium for how you approach this, because you've included environmental justice and equity, community, labor and stakeholder engagement, policy and regulation, and workforce and skills development. Now, I want to put some Canadian context around this. Okay. We just last month had a huge public spat between the Alberta government, which is kind of like the Texas of Canada, and, uh, and the Canadian government, which is kind of like, you know, it's got a, a centrist, lefty, leftist center kind of government, just like, you know, the Biden Democrats. And, and the Alberta government took exception to a just transition legislation that's coming up that dealt with, that really was aimed at all of the things I just read, you know, about your consortium. And the Alberta government created, literally manufactured a controversy saying, oh, no, no, just transition means you're trying to kill oil and gas. And no. it's those kinds of those kinds of the politicization, the weaponizing for political purposes of these. It, what it does is it muddies it. It delays it. It impedes progress on it. Instead of everybody, you know, being all rowing in the same direction, now we're rowing in different directions and we're having fights about, and of course that delays things. And I was just so impressed that your consortium has been able to integrate all of those soft values and see it as a, an integral part of your consortium. You know, part, part obviously part of it comes from the fact that the um, the hub proposal itself speaks to those kinds of areas and the scoring in those areas. But I think more importantly, at least at the University of Houston, we're, we're integrated with an awful lot of the major co industrial companies in the United States, whether it's ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, uh, Lindy, Air Products. I mean, they're all right here in our area, right? So, and I can tell you from my own experience, Markham, that we have spent as an industry billions of dollars and at least in my experience, 53 years trying to get the public to recognize and appreciate the value of, in, in my case, oil and gas industrial development. And, and yet we still have underserved communities, underrepresented communities, communities that do not benefit. A gentleman told me the other day, we were talking about workforce development. And he said, you guys in industry come to our community and you tell us you're going to have bring us jobs. And it never crosses your mind that the people in this community, for a variety of reasons, most of which are not their fault, 
do not have the skills to be able to accept those jobs or to qualify for those jobs. So the consequence is you build this project and then and the community watches pickup trucks drive in at eight o'clock in the morning and drive out at five o'clock in the afternoon and they don't benefit at all. At the university and through our consortium, we recognize that to use a Texas expression you may recognize, that dog don't hunt. <laughs> we we gotta do it differently. We gotta do it better. And and it is the aim of our consortium to create a new model for that workforce development, a new a new set of processes that will be successful in the age of environmental justice and equity. One of the one of the things I found most delightful about my time in Texas is all of the af aphorisms and sayings <laughs> that the Texans have. And and my favorite one. Uh, involved a squealing pig in a gate. <laughs> I don't remember remember it offhand. I just remember the squealing pig in the gate. So <laughs> it's it's kind of like that's that's my my comeback to that would be it's a little bit like a cow staring at a cattle gap. Yeah, there you go. There no is. no idea what to do with it, right? <laughs> well, look, I, this the what you just brought up is is really germane to, to Canada, uh, in particular in, in, in Alberta. And I keep coming back to Alberta because, you know, it is the epicenter of the energy industry in, in Canada. And so it is, it's grappling with how to make the, you know, you, you mentioned earlier in, in, in the interview, you know, the energy transition. Well, up until just a, a year or two ago, the energy transition uh, was a dirty word there. And, and I, you know, as somebody who has reported on the energy transition since, you know, for pretty much the last 10 years, you know, I fought this battle many times in public and in, 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 in the work that I was doing. And now, okay, so fine. We've accepted that there's a global energy transition. It's a structural change. Markets are changing, consumer preferences, technology, all of that. What do we do when we're a big oil and gas industry? You know, that's our economy to a large extent, what do we do? And it seems like this approach from your consortium incorporates some of the best in practice ideas that are be, you know, that come out of academia or come out of out of um, um, other places other than the the industry. Is that a, a fair thing to say? I think it is. as as you've as you were talking that through that question, I, I my mind went in a couple of different places. First of all, you know, our communities of color, our underserved communities, underrepresented communities are not really any different than your First Nation issues. There's a lot of commonality there, right? Um, I, 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 I am aware of the, the struggles with the pipelines going across to the to the West and the, the potential LNG exports of, of that side. So that, that's an issue uh, that, that we have in common. And, and no reason why we can't work together to try to resolve those, those, uh, those issues. Um, but, but um, I, I think that um, the the hub is a is a new opportunity for us to rethink it, to rethink the whole process, to try to find a way to get it right. And and I guess the other thing I wanted to say here that that your question provoked is is this whole thing about natural gas, right? In in the future, 
we don't see hydrogen in Texas as competitive to natural gas. We see hydrogen as an extending, extending the life of our natural gas resources. The truth of the matter is we have enough natural gas here in Texas that we can fuel Texas with our natural gas, regardless of what the rest of the world does. But if we really wanna be an en a clean energy capital of the world, we have to find a way to decarbonize that supply because our markets are requiring it, regardless of what we think. The markets in Europe, the markets in Indo-Asia are, are requiring decarbonized fuels. Africa has a billion people roughly that don't have regular electricity. Uh, that we can let them continue to burn wood and dung, or we can find ways to get them a decarbonized fuel. So we think hydrogen and ammonia extend the life of our resources. They don't damage the industry. Yeah, fair enough. And and I and I see that. Uh, I actually do see that in Alberta. And, and in fact, that's you know the the Alberta government has a hydrogen roadmap, uh, and you see industry talking about it all the time. Um, so they're on board on on that piece. Um, just be, since you brought up Canadian First Nations, particularly in Western Canada, um, I've I've worked with and for uh, First Nations in the past, and one issue that comes up all the time, and this is actually part of the reason why they have problems with those pipelines, uh, is. If you if you listen to somebody, uh, you know, a First Nation official who is involved in economic development, they will say all the time, don't come and talk to us when you already have your project ready to go. Come and talk to us and build a relationship long before you're developing the project. Make us a partner and we'll be a really good partner. But if, if we're an afterthought, if we're just a box that you have to tick off you know, in an environmental assessment process, you got problems because this yep. is our land and we're not happy about, you know, having stuff built on it that we're not involved in and have influence over. And it seems like involving the communities of color, underserved communities, labor, involving all of those right at the beginning in the formation of the hub, the development of the hub, giving them having input, a seat at the table, addresses that fundamental issue of people want in they want they would want to sit with you at the table they they certainly whether or not whether or not that's bringing them to the table let's let whether that's successful i think remains to be seen right but it's clearly long overdue so we need to we need to sit down uh, and and bring people to the table and see if we can reach common ground, common understandings. The best, you know, we used to back in the I, I guess when we were kind of looking to Japan as an industrial model, the the term win win sort of got thrown around a good bit and. In, in at least in the competitive world of commercial organizations in the United States. It you know it's it's let's maximize not optimize, and and so as as companies come together with communities and come together with academic partners, we're be, we're beginning to talk more about the value of optimizing rather than maximizing, sharing rather than taking the whole loaf so to speak. So, I I think the the devil's in the details and the you know, the proof will be in the pudding to, to use two 
trite analogies, but that but that's what I where I think we are. We're going to see if this now can do a better job. Now, uh, you, earlier on in the interview, you mentioned the advantages that Texas and, and the Gulf Coast has, you know, gas supply, uh, porosity, you know, geology with the right porosity. Um, but there's a couple that I, that I want to talk about in particular, and that's the massive renewable energy capacity and production. Because when I was in West Texas, you can't go anywhere in West Texas without seeing wind, you know, wind turbines. They're everywhere. And uh, now this was 20 years ago that I was there. So I would imagine that solar panels, solar farms are now pretty common. It's it's a, it's a desert. It's hot. It's sunny. It seems like the perf perfect place to be doing to be doing solar. And I'm fond of saying on this in my interviews that clean, abundant, low cost electricity is really the foundation of the 21st century. Whatever we're going to do, we're, that we're going to have to, we're going to, we're electrifying parts of the economy and those parts that are become, you know, that be served by low emission fuel or sustainable fuel, whatever we want to use, however we want to call it, electricity will be part of that. We're going to use it to make the, you know, to run the steam methane reformers. So when you're sitting at the table with your consortium partners, what role does the the build out of ERCOT and the the grid, the modernization of the grid, and building more renewables? What role does that play in the conversation? So, um, we think of hydrogen as a as a decarbonized fuel source, right? And if you're trying to decarbonize the energy space, it, there's no doubt, but that utilities are the are the biggest prospect right i mean we we got a lot of steel plants we have aluminum plants and cement plants but they pale in comparison to the amount of natural gas used at, at the in the utilities so um bringing the bringing the the vision of the utility companies for their low carbon future is a way to cement or help cement an understanding of the marketplace for hydrogen or ammonia if it's necessary as an energy carrier uh, for the future. Ultimately, it's it's a competitive environment, right? It and and it's it, we're fond of saying it's always about the cost, right? And so, whether in Texas, I think the University of Houston believes in the all of the above. We're going to do. We're going to have blue hydrogen. We're going to have um, green hydrogen. Um, we're going to use electrolyzers and we're going to leave use steam methane reformation. Um, if you get an email from me at the bottom of that email in green, there's a little catchphrase and it says it's not the fuel, it's the emissions. It's not oil and gas are not causing the problem. It's methane and carbon dioxide that are causing the problem. So let's fix that using hydrogen, using renewable resources, using nuclear if necessary. That's the way to solve the problem. And the uh, the other thing that you that's emphasized uh, in your consortium is the enormous industrial base along the U.S. Golf Course, Port of Port of Houston. This is something that you know if you're a Canadian and you haven't been down to Houston and seen what is built, the plant that's built along the the coast there, it's it's really something. And industrial clusters which i mean basically the when you bring in industry together 
they they begin to they they attract supply chains they attract suppliers the suppliers then grow as the industry grows they begin to interact with each other they develop a labor pool they develop uh you know sort of sub suppliers all of that it becomes very complex but it's also the basis of a modern industrial economy the, the clusters that's what you really want is you want you don't just having the the plant that does something manufactures something is is only part of the equation that the supply chains that's where the in a lot of time that, that's where the real action takes place that's where the 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 job creation takes place the r&d takes place and so how does your consortium see leveraging that industrial base and those supply chains uh around your project so I'll answer your question by giving you a, two statistics that, that came out of a study done by McKinsey and company here in, Houston, in the Houston area about a couple of years ago. And it related to hydrogen. And, and the question it was, well, what would be the impact of hydrogen or hydrogen economy on the economy in Texas between now and 2050? And there were there are two numbers that stick in my head from that study. The first is that such a hydrogen economy in Texas between now and 2050 would generate 188,000 new and induced jobs. Probably a pretty good number by Canadian standards, but in, in, a, in a Houston area, metropolitan area with almost 6 million people, not that big a number, right? But the added gross domestic product for the, for the state of Texas over that same period of time, the added gross domestic product was $100 billion. And that speaks to the supply chain and everything else that flourishes around these hubs, be they hydrogen or healthcare or aviation or automotive or whatever it may be. That's where the real benefits flow from. Yeah, interesting. I, I I would agree with you hundred uh, percent. Um, well, let's close out the interview, Paul. With your, uh, I'd like to ask you about labor being at the table, and and how that. I assume that there be you know unions and union organizations that you know organizations that rent represent unions, and how does how does that work? Tell us a little bit about the dynamic of having labor at the table. What their expectations are. What your expectations are. Of, of having workers, uh, you know, as part of the project. So, uh, you know, uh, labor in Texas is an interesting problem, right? We're a right to work state, which means essentially that workers do not have to join a union in order to work in a unionized shop. Um, the labor mute movement is no more or less a constituent than an, a community of color or any other part of our consortium or, or stakeholder engagement group, um, finding ways to, to make them feel a part of the process is kind of where you start. And if you have a relationship that leads to a win-win instead, of I get everything and you get nothing, then at the end of the day, we're optimizing the benefits across the entire stakeholder and group rather than maximizing it to one. It's very much a work in progress. Um, I, I think it's fair to say commercial organizations are scared to death of, you know, how 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 organized labor will will interact. But at least in a federally funded project, we're required to use Department of Labor wages. And, and so that takes that 
sort of off the table, right? So then it it is a conversation about benefits and and those kinds of things. And it, and industrial companies in the United States usually have pretty good benefits. So it's it. Fingers crossed. It's it's uh, a work in progress, but we're optimistic. Well, Paul, thank you very much for this. Really appreciate it. It, it lots of insights into how the U.S. is approaching. Uh, the energy transition and uh, industrial strategy and policy, and in particular around uh, hydrogen hubs in this one. And we'll be watching the development of uh, of your project. Uh, I would be shocked, to tell you the truth, if you weren't one of the successful applicants. Uh, the U.S. Gulf Coast is just uh, too important and too significant in the energy economy. So, But good luck in the application, and we'll hopefully chat with you in the future about, uh, about how the, the project's going along. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Mm-hmm.